Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Climate One Conversations with Oil Companies and Environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats are recorded in front of a live audience. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One recently traveled to Cambridge, Massachusetts to record a special program at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with two environmental champions. I am tired of a debate about climate change as if we're sacrificing or giving up anything to actually address it. Gina McCarthy served as U.S. EPA Administrator under President Obama in his second term. She now directs the Harvard Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment. McCarthy sees climate change as a public health issue that involves everyone, especially communities most impacted by pollution from fossil fuels. There is no silver bullet. I say that so often that some of my colleagues are calling me silver shotgun Holdren. We need silver buckshot. We need to do a lot of things at once. John Holdren was President Obama's White House science advisor. He is currently the Teresa and John Hines Professor of Environmental Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. I began our conversation at Harvard by asking Gina McCarthy for her views on the ambition, aspiration, and practicality of the Green New Deal and other calls for climate action since the 2018 midterm elections. I think the Green New Deal was a wake-up call. You know, I'm here at Harvard and these students are, they're impatient with the lack of progress that's happened. They're upset about the inequities and the injustices involved in climate change. And, and, and they are really interested in making the case that health and climate go hand in hand. You know, climate change isn't about polar bears. It's us and our kids, it's our health today, it's about their future. And the Green New Deal brought a level of energy and enthusiasm to this issue. I don't think it was intended to be, if we don't get there first, we don't get there at all. It was really intended, I think, to be values that we all should share. And I think for, for many years, I know that the obligation on the Environmental Protection Agency was to protect public health and natural resources and to do it in a way which didn't destroy the economy but supported it. Why all of a sudden can't climate change solutions do exactly the same thing? And so I'm excited about it. Uh, I, I understand that it's a bunch of stretch goals and I think AOC and Senator Maki clearly understand that, but it was a wake-up call to everybody who thinks incrementalism is going to be enough. We know it isn't. And it really, AOC was really the key, you know, her charisma, her charm really brought it forward. And she's been told by some people kind of 
tone it down. So there's maybe a gender aspect to that. Well, how do you see that, what she's told kind <laughs> think of? think people are patting her on the head and saying, go back to the kitchen, honey? Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, cl clearly, uh, she ran on a campaign. She won overwhelmingly. She's representing the interests of her constituencies. You know, the last thing in the world I would ever want to do is to tell someone who worked that hard and who is that enthusiastic that they need to calm themselves down and fit into the mold of a Congress that hasn't been effective for quite a while. So I'm kind of interested in, in seeing how this shakes out. Clearly, I want, you know, I want climate change to be addressed and I want movement forward and I've been in government for 40 years. I know change doesn't happen overnight, but I'm quite sure that AOC and Senator Maki knows that as well. They're setting a, a, a stretch goal so that we can wake up and start doing something and I'm excited about it. John Holden, your take on you know, aspirational excitement or overreach? Well, I think actually it's a little bit of both, but not uh, to the detriment of the overall debate. I think the vision, the sense of urgency, uh, the commitment, uh, the ambition in the Green New Deal are all highly beneficial. I think it was intended all along to be a clarion call for a desperately needed national debate on climate change. Uh, rather than a blueprint for exactly where we need to be at exactly a specific time. Uh, I think that the, the biggest uh, worry I have about it is that by lumping together both the measures we need to take to address climate change, both in mitigation, emissions reductions, and adaptation to the changes in climate that we can no longer avoid, lumping that together with a whole set of other really splendid aspirational goals, a decent job for everybody, a decent education for everybody, decent housing for everybody, decent medical care. Those are all highly desirable uh, goals. But by lumping them all together in one package, I fear that they actually make the climate change problem itself look harder than it actually is. That is, if people get the idea that we can only address climate change if simultaneously we achieve all of these other laudable goals, then they will think climate change is even harder than it is. What we need to do in climate change is already hard, uh, but it's doable. And it's doable at not just a modest economic cost, but ultimately an economic gain. And this is one of the points that is really not widely enough understood because Republicans in particular love to talk about the costs of addressing climate change, and they don't talk about the benefits. They don't talk about the jobs. They don't talk about the new technologies. They don't talk about the climate damage averted, the damage that climate change will do to the economy if we don't fix it. And when you take everything into account, addressing climate change looks like an economic winner, not a loser. And again, the, the, the trouble is if you think we need an enormous jobs program and an, and an enormous social safety net because climate change is going to cause all these economic stresses, I think that's a misimpression. And that's one of the reasons I worry about the comprehensiveness of the Green New Deal. But again, I think it is, it is really very clear that AOC and Senator Markey and others who uh, supported this idea are throwing down the gauntlet. They're saying it's time to have a serious argument about the pace of progress that we need to get our arms around this challenge. And by the way, these other challenge, which, challenges, which are linked in some ways to the climate change challenge, 
uh, would also be good to get on with. I just expect in the end that we won't actually see legislation that puts all of these pieces together. I believe that we can make the economic arguments as well as the physical science and biology and public health arguments to get a consensus on that sooner rather than later, and I think that's very important. Gene McCarthy, if I, I've interviewed a lot of environmental justice advocates. As you know, last time we were together, we were with a very powerful one. And if I put myself in her shoes, hearing what John Holdren said is like, okay, let me deconstruct that. Which a, a coastal elite white person is telling me, people of color still need to wait. Don't you know that there, there, there's an environmental justice critique that, okay, what you're saying is we have to, you know, not now wait your turn. We've been told that for centuries. We're tired of waiting. It's urgent. We want economic justice and wealth distribution now as part of this. Don't tell us we have to wait. That's Can what they I? Hear. It, I mean, and John, clearly you, you didn't say that, didn't but say I understand that. what Greg, Greg is asking. And one of the reasons why I'm at the School of Public Health is that, in, and this is something that John helped to frame when he was in the White House, is that, you know, uh, greenhouse gases are carbon pollutants. We've kicked pollution before. We have to kick this, right? We have to deal with it. But pollution is, is not an equal opportunity killer. Exactly. It goes after the young, it goes after the elderly, it goes after the low income, it goes after the minorities. Disproportionately That's, so. what, yes. uh, that's yeah, my absolutely. point. Yeah. And so if you connect climate and health, you will automatically first think of the communities that are most vulnerable to get the benefits from climate action. That's what you need to do. They, you can't let equity be the afterthought. It needs to be the driver of change. That's why when you look at something like the Green New Deal, clearly you're not looking for a piece of legislation that does everything all at once. But the issue is that there are 104,000 people living a, earning a good living in wind power today. There's 240,000 people. So I am tired of a debate about climate change as if we're sacrificing or giving up anything to actually address it instead of recognizing that climate change is real. John Holdren, who's the smartest guy I know in this, said we can lick it. It means money. It means investment. So make sure that investment is in health protections today on your way to a sustainable future because it will be a more just future. And why isn't that exactly what the Green New Deal intended? Let's not be stupid about the actions we take. Let's get twofers, threefers, fourfers. That's hard to say. <laughs> without without spitting on John, it's actually really hard to say. You, you missed. <laughs> Thank you. Good. I tried my best, I guess. Uh, so this is kind of the energy that we need is that we have been falsely provided a ridiculous conversation. First, that it wasn't real. Then it may be real, but we shouldn't do anything about it because it's too expensive. And John's right. Climate change is a risk to our health today. It's exacerbating all the health challenges we have. It's killing our children and our elderly first. It's keeping people in poverty when we have an ability to invest in climate actions that completely turn that around. That's what it's all about. And I think we have failed miserably to, to entice people with what a climate future looks like. How does it avoid yeah. the pitfalls of today? No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And the, and the key point that Gina has been making and that I would want to underline is that addressing climate change is by its nature progressive. 
First of all, because the poor uh, are the most afflicted by the damages from climate change. Secondly, because addressing climate change will create jobs that lift up the economy and lift up the people uh, in need of additional employment. But thirdly, if we finally have the wit to put a price on the offending emissions, which simply brings into the balance sheet of producers and consumers the costs that otherwise they were imposing on the whole society without seeing in their own economic decisions. If we just have the wit to do that and then rebate the money on a per capita basis, which by the way is what Alaska does with its oil revenues, uh, its oil royalties, rebate it on a per capita basis, and that's a progressive measure as well. So we should not be accepting the burden of this argument that somehow addressing climate change is going to hurt the poor or it's going to be regressive. There is a potential swindle in the notion that a carbon tax will fix everything. I don't think a carbon tax will fix everything. I know you don't, But John. the swindle yeah. is that a carbon tax at the level that is likely to command political support at this point might be $30 a ton of CO2. That would have a big impact on coal burning. It would have some impact on natural gas burning, but we have no impact on automobiles because $30 a ton of CO2 translates to 30 cents a gallon of gasoline. And that's why the argument is, less is than wrong. the tax we put on well, a pack of cigarettes. The, the, and the price of <laughs> gasoline goes up and down by 30 cents a gallon in yeah. a week for reasons yeah. nobody right. can explain with both right. hands above the table. So the idea that 30 cents a gallon on gasoline is going to cause people to carpool or take public transportation or ride their bike instead or buy uh, an electric car is just not right. And that's why we should not accept the notion that if the Congress gives us a carbon tax, we have to do away with regulation. That's crazy. We should not do away with fuel economy standards. We should not do away with appliance standards. We should not do away with building standards. Uh, but a carbon price on top of that would be helpful. That'd be nice. You're listening to a Climate One conversation recorded at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with former EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy and former White House Science Advisor John Holdren. Coming up, we'll hear more about making health and prosperity the basis for climate action. Fossil fuels served a purpose. It underpinned our economy. We now know that it's both dangerous to continue to rely on it and we have a better way to actually energize ourselves in a better way that produces a healthier and more just future. We have to grab that. That's up next when Climate One continues. This Climate One program was recorded at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests were John Holdren, former science advisor to President Obama, and Gina McCarthy, former EPA administrator, now director of Harvard's Center for Health and the Global Environment. I asked Gina McCarthy what she thought about the parallels between the fossil fuel and tobacco industries, and whether there was any possibility of the oil companies acknowledging the harm caused by their product, perhaps even agreeing to pay for damages. I don't see it, you know, and, and it's, it's just climate change is just more difficult. It, it took 40 years to actually convince people that cigarette smoking was bad for your health. We don't have for 40 more years. And so I need people engaged in understanding this. Tobacco, the, the simple message was smoking kills, don't smoke. Okay, well, there's no inherent value with tobacco and there never has been. 
So that's a pretty nice, neat little thing to be able to say. You can't do that with climate. When we say fossil fuels kills, when it, it does when you burn, it does when you start destroying the planet and our ecosystems, it's not, well, shut it off. There is a, fossil fuels served a purpose. It underpinned our economy. We now know that it's both dangerous to continue to rely on it and because of, thankfully, lots of investment in the alternatives, we have a better way to actually energize ourselves in a better way that produces a healthier and more just future. We have to grab that. That is a very not smoking kills, don't smoke discussion. Right. And so it's, it's it, we need to ground it and we need to be positive and we need people to run towards a better future. And, and that means we need to actually reduce and eventually eliminate fossil fuels in our economy. And that's not just burning it. That's going into the plastics that are killing our ocean, which is all oil-based. That's going into the synthetic chemicals that produce the pesticides that we rely on for factory farming and industrial farming, which we can no longer rely on to feed 10 million people, because that means cutting down forests that, that hurt the climate. These are complex systems questions, which aren't neatly put into a slogan anywhere. Just to underline uh, one part of Gina's point, the world still depends on fossil fuels, coal and oil and natural gas, for 80% of its primary energy, for two-thirds of its electricity. The United States still depends, for all you've heard about wind and solar and maybe nuclear and hydropower and biomass, 85% dependent on coal, oil and natural gas. As much as we would like to, we cannot change that overnight. We absolutely have to change it. We have to move to much greater reliance on renewables. We have to see if we can fix nuclear to the point where it could play uh, a role in taking a bite out of the carbon problem. Uh, we have to emphasize uh, energy efficiency. Uh, but I think we're also going to need carbon capture and sequestration. We're going to need to learn to affordably capture the carbon dioxide from the smokestacks of power plants because no matter what else we do, we're going to be burning fossil fuels for decades to come in declining quantities, but we're still going to be burning fossil fuels. And we've got to get emissions basically to zero before the end of this century. And that requires the, that we have what President Obama used to call an all-hands-on-deck approach. We have to transition as rapidly as we can away from that extraordinary and that, and that is real with policies and, and regulations yeah. and laws really have to provide the the right signal to the market about w what people are going to be buying and what we should be investing in and and that's the challenge that i mostly ha well i have many challenges with this administration let's be honest that's the major one on climate is they have confused the market signal they have allowed other countries to actually move far ahead of us in terms of the developing of this, the clean solutions we need moving forward. And that's going to damage the, the ability of the United States to be the strongest country. John Holden, you mentioned carbon capture and sequestration. Billions of dollars has been, have been spent on trying to develop that technology. The Bush administration pulled the plug on, on one project. Some people think that that's kind of a red herring to preserve the business model of fossil fuel companies. They can keep burning. So you know, how much money needs to be invested in, in uh, breakthrough technology to capture carbon from smokestacks and tailpipes? Because some people think that is really not going to happen. It better happen because if it doesn't, 
I believe that we will have uh, an almost impossible task of meeting the aim, for example, to reduce uh, the, the original aim, the aim in the Obama administration, reduce U.S. emissions by 80 percent by 2050. Uh, doing that without carbon capture and sequestration is going to be uh, very, very hard. I wouldn't, wouldn't say impossible. A scientist, a technologist should never say impossible if it doesn't violate fundamental laws of nature, <laughs> but it will be very, very hard. It's been a lot of fundamental. Hard. And yeah. progress is being made on carbon capture and sequestration. There are now uh, responsible folks who are saying that the, the best technologies now available or that would become commercially available very shortly could capture and sequester a CO2 for about $45 a ton, but they see potential for getting it down to $25 a ton. And if carbon capture and sequestration cost $25 a ton, that's within the range of a carbon fee or a carbon tax that might be politically palatable, and then we'd see that stuff going in all over the place. That is not a substitute for expanding wind, for expanding solar, for expanding sustainably grown biofuels, and of course, uh, it doesn't fix the transport sector because we're not going to put carbon capture and sequestration on vehicles and we're not going to run uh, Boeing 747s on batteries. Uh, so we need additional <laughs> technologies to address those parts of the problem. But again, I don't think we should leave anything off the table. We should be investing in optimizing every technology that has the potential to reduce emissions, and then we pick the best ones and deploy them but do as fast as we can. Do American taxpayers have the appetite to spend billions of dollars on something that may not turn out? We should. We've been spending billions of dollars for decades trying to make fusion energy work, and it still doesn't work. Uh, I worked on fusion I'm energy in the, in, 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 <laughs> in the late 60s. Still doesn't work. Fusion doesn't work. Uh, the best fusion machines require more energy than they produce. But the idea that there's a single silver bullet, whether it's wind or photovoltaics or energy efficiency, there is no silver bullet. I say that so often that some of my colleagues are calling me silver shotgun Holdren. We need silver buckshot. We need to do a lot of things at once because as Gina has already said, we have wasted a lot of time. People asked me, right as the Paris Accords were agreed, they said, oh, you must be ecstatic. You worked so hard on getting these Paris agreements. Aren't you very happy? And I said, yeah, I'm happy, but I would have been a lot happier if we had done this 25 years ago. Because in my judgment, we knew enough in 1990 to justify all of the measures that were agreed in Paris. And we lost a quarter of a century in part because of the misinformation and the muddying of the water that uh, advocates of the status quo, fossil fuel industry, Republicans who were afraid of uh, government overreach and regulation, they muddied the water enough that we lost a quarter of a century. And we cannot lose another quarter of a century or we will be cooked. If you're just joining us, I'm Greg Dalton at Climate One at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. My guests are Gina McCarthy, former administrator of the U.S. EPA and director of the Center on Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and John Holdren, former White House science advisor to President Obama, and the Teresa and John Hines Professor of Environmental Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Gina McCarthy, a lot of action in the courts lately. 
Um, one district court in Alaska uh, overturned a Trump administration uh, executive order saying that opening up drilling in the Arctic wildlife refuge exceeded ex <laughs> exceeded the president's authority. Another one, a federal court in Wyoming, halted oil and gas drilling, saying the government must account for climate impacts. Your take on what's happening in the courts on climate? This administration is losing. <laughs> uh, I think I think it has like a six percent. Um, uh, success rate in the courts on what they've been doing with with environmental uh, and natural resource uh, efforts. Listen, what, what's happening here is not different than what happens in with with uh, this president right now. Is is that he just doesn't respect the process? You know, these things are getting blown out. You know, not because of the substance as much as because they're not doing the process right. And we're in the United States of America. There's a process for engaging the public. There's a process for getting comment. There are things you need to do to prove that regulation or other permit and other decisions are the right thing to do. And, and it's called transparency. It's called science. It's called real data. It's called real analysis. It's called engagement and outreach. They don't do any of that. Here's the challenge this administration has is they came with a things to do list and that wasn't to strengthen democracy. That, that things to do list was the outcome. And unfortunately for them and fortunately for the breathing public is that they've not been able to say that we got the science wrong, we did the analysis wrong, we didn't do the outreach. In fact, we did all those things in spades. So, so they can't figure out in a substantive way following the process to get rid of all of the actions that the Obama administration took on climate and traditional air pollutants. So instead, they, they're just going to the end and cutting out the process. And the courts simply won't abide by that. And none of us should in a democracy. We're supposed to have a say. There's supposed to be a way to engage. We're supposed to know what's going on. We're not supposed to deny the science in the face of, of real science telling us something different. So I'm extraordinarily pleased that the courts are looking at these things, but the challenge we face is why should we have to sue our federal government on everything they do in order to protect ourselves, our health, and our democracy? It's insulting to have a to-do list that's written by somebody that, that doesn't want the world to be healthier and safer. I, I don't get it. That's not a Republican criticism. That's not how Republicans think. I've worked for Republicans. They like to breathe clean air. And I think they'd prefer the planet to be around for our kids. Do you know what I mean? Or our kids to be around on the planet is probably and, and, a better way to Speaking of kids, one of the big cases is Juliana versus uh, United, yeah. the United States, first yeah. filed under the, the Obama administration, now the Trump administration. That's one of the things that there's been youth strikes, children walking out of high schools that's around right. the country. How has that energized? You know, obviously, we're here on a college campus. That's always the case. This is broader and, and younger now. Uh, it's not college students. It's high school yeah. students around the world, inspired by Greta Thunberg. Uh, so She's awesome. Is she not awesome? Uh, it, I just don't. It's kids today are just amazing. That particular case is another case in point. It's like a Green New Day case. Basically, when they started the case where the kids were suing the federal government for not protecting their future, essentially, and claiming that they're all impacted by climate change and making the case. 
every lawyer said, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, you can't take that route. And now all of a sudden they're all going, hmm, I wonder. A female judge in Oregon who said, yeah. It, yeah. It's proceeding. And, and I think that it's a, it's a wake-up call. And I think you see the fossil fuel industry getting very nervous about their liability with the various lawsuits that are happening at state levels, in particular New York, which has a, a real sorry, strong case, if you will, in terms of New York law. And so th there is a, a, a real, I think, willingness now to test the means and mechanisms of making actions flow. And I think it's young people who are refusing to, play, to color within the lines. That picture doesn't involve them right now. It doesn't protect them. So they're scribbling all over the place, and it's creating a dynamic situation which you clearly want to land and progress on. But it's so much better than what it was two years ago. Seriously, because it's just the energy and the enthusiasm is moving forward. Do I want a president that respects climate and moves forward in a Congress that acts? That's the outcome I'm looking for. But I don't have that right now, so I'll take the energy. And one reason I think John Holder and those kids uh, have touched people, there's an emotional, uh, a moral level. So much of the climate conversation is cerebral, intellectual, chemistry and physics, it's abstract. Those children walking out. So I'd like to hear from you about how, you know, your time in, in the White House and elsewhere, the role of the social sciences and having a human emotional conversation because spewing facts for several decades, you know, it got so far, but there's limits to spewing facts. But, but let me say, first of all, that, that the kids, while they are full of energy and passion and commitment, they are also armed with the facts. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the, and one of the nice things yeah. about the Juliana case is while the silver-haired attorneys might have said you can't do it this way, the silver-haired scientists participated. Yeah, that's that is, right. Many of our most senior yeah. climate scientists wrote the briefs and armed those kids with the facts. And I've talked to a number of those kids, and they know the facts. And so they are appropriately armed, not just with passion and commitment, but they know the arguments, they know the impacts, they can make the case that climate change is already harming uh, all of us. It's harming life, health, property, economies, ecosystems. They can make those arguments and they can make the argument that if we do not change course, it's going to get worse and it's going to be their generation that suffers even more than current generations are suffering. So they are, they're a great force for good. They're a breath of fresh air, but they are not just passion and emotion. Sure, now on, sure. the, on this, the, the inclusion of the social science dimension uh, in the considerations of climate change in the Obama administration, one of the things we did from the beginning, because Obama understood that this is an issue that we can only address with insights from all of the disciplines, from the social sciences, from the natural sciences, from engineering, from law, we transformed the U.S. Global Change Research Program, which 13 agencies, including EPA, including NASA, including NOAA, 13 agencies, $2.7 billion a year, and we brought in social scientists uh, in numbers in order to add this human dimension of global environmental change. How people think about it, why they do what they do, what kinds of incentives would cause them to do uh, different things, to change in ways that would improve the situation. Uh, we had a, uh, a behavioral and social sciences team in the White House led by one of my employees in OSTP, a brilliant young neuroscientist, and that team 
uh, was extraordinarily effective in uh, bringing to bear the most current insights from social and behavioral sciences on government challenges. So we made a big deal of that. Uh, I'm afraid that uh, there's somewhat less of that going on now, although I think uh, under suitable bureaucratic cover, uh, parts of that team are still in place. Uh, you know, not everything going on <laughs> in the Don't out them now, don't yeah, out them. Yeah, yeah, we shouldn't, we, we, we shouldn't uh, out them. But, but I, I, I do want to say, I mean, we've said a lot of critical things about the Trump administration and they're deserved, but the important thing, uh, at least an important thing, is that there are many dedicated public servants in the government, uh, career folks who are still doing their best to get useful things done. They have a terrible handicap in terms of who's at the top of the pile, but uh, there's still good work being done in the U.S. Global Change Research Program. There's good work being done in the bowels of the Department of Energy. We have a Department of Defense which still understands that climate change is a major national security challenge and is trying to take appropriate action. So we, we need to support and encourage the sensible forces that are still present in government while we do everything we can with states, with cities, with communities, with the grassroots. We don't need to get angry. We need to get active. You're listening to Climate One, recorded at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health with President Obama's former science advisor, John Holdren, and former EPA Administrator, Gina McCarthy. Coming up, we'll talk about the mental health aspects of coping with extreme weather and a disrupted climate. How do you avoid depressing people? You tell them at the end, it's up to us. We have agency. We have the opportunity to act and to drastically reduce the risks that we face going forward. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are former White House Science Advisor John Holdren and former U.S. EPA Chief Gina McCarthy. I wanted to ask Gina McCarthy about climate and mental health, not just the stress of experiencing extreme weather, but also the sadness and grief that might come with thinking about living with climate uncertainty. There's a tremendous amount of work now being done on the mental health issue. It cannot be dismissed. It's much larger than anyone thought. It's, there's actually PTSD happening after these wildfires. And not just the people involved in them, but watching it on the television. It's distressing to see. It's, and, and that's why it's extremely important that we, we explain to people that, that, that we can't, they can be protected and there is hope for the future. I really worry about the young people, I, I, you know, and, and what the vibes they get from us. And so it's extremely important that we look at these issues and, and we address them, uh, but we do it in a way that le leads them to an understanding that they can participate in the process and we can make change. Uh, and, and, and we need to recognize that there are many risks associated with climate that we have to anticipate and we have to adapt for. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to think about where homes are being built, whether they're in flood zones or whether they're in areas that are at extreme risk of wildfire damage. We have to think about how we prepare for that and respond to it and keep people safe, but recognize that it doesn't end when the fire's out. You know, it is, it is really, I think, a, a pressing issue. And how you talk to your kids about it matters. You know, it, we never want to hand anybody 
uh, any child uh, a, a problem that we can encourage them to help solve. Mm. And so I think a lot can be done. We, we are going to lose some ground, and we are. And it's challenging to, to live with the rollbacks that I'm seeing. That's hard for me. So for 10 minutes, I scream and yell, and then I get over it, and you just keep plugging forward. That's how progress gets made. No one ever said life is going to be easy. And John Holdren, you grew up in San Mateo, uh, California, the county in California that has the greatest risk exposure to to, um, to sea level rise. I'd like to take you to that, you know, a place where you grew up, to, you know, to your youth. What are you concerned about? What do you remember? You, uh, the beauty of that place, and what are you worried about? Well, when my parents moved with me as a four-year-old to San Mateo in 1948, there were 30,000 people in San Mateo. Uh, now there are about 85,000. Uh, houses have covered the hills that were formerly covered with oak trees and, uh, and grass. Uh, Foster City was built on a gigantic uh, landfill, which is in danger uh, as sea level rises of being completely uh, flooded out. But I don't confine my focus to the place that I grew up. Uh, I think about what uh, a meter of sea level rise is likely to mean to Mumbai, to Shanghai, to Boston, to Washington, D.C., to London, based on my reading of what we're understanding about Antarctica, what we're understanding about Greenland, what we're understanding about the pace of temperature rise, which produces thermal expansion and contributes to sea level rise. Uh, based on all of that, I think it is at least plausible that we would see a meter by 2050 and two meters. And two meters, by the way, is near the upper end of NOAA's estimate by 2100. I mean, our National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says we could see two meters by 2100. When you say NOAA, I thought you were talking about the NOAA. Yeah. 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 The guy with the ark? Yeah. He's built for six feet. <laughs> sort of the same conversation. <laughs> But again, the single most important uncertainty about the future of climate change is what we decide to do. You know, there's a lot of hand-wringing. The models aren't perfect. The forecasts aren't perfect. Uh, we're not sure how much sea level rise there'll be by 2050 or 2100. The biggest uncertainty is what we decide to do. If we take, as a society, sensible but aggressive action to reduce emissions and to build resilience, preparedness, adaptation, we need both. If we do that, we can drastically reduce the future damages that we'll otherwise be in for. And that's the message I put at the end of every talk I give publicly about this. You say, well, how do you avoid depressing people? You tell them at the end, it's up to us. We have agency. We have the opportunity to act and to drastically reduce the risks that we face going forward from climate change. Gina McCarthy. Great. Can I just, you know, you talk about you can't carbon capture. You don't need to take carbon out of the emissions from an electric vehicle. If you asked me 20 years ago whether people would have electric vehicles or ones that w could drive themselves, I would have told you to just go watch a sci-fi movie, right? Life changes. Think about the way the United States of America is today compared to where we were 50 years ago on the first Earth Day. You know, the progress we have made is startling. The innovations we, we can bring to the table today are happening every single day, and we snooze about them. We'll get those innovations to come in the area of climate. I don't need to know 
to be comforted about what our path, exact path is to get to the levels of reductions that science demands. I just need to know that we're willing to try. I just need to know that we're not discouraged, we don't lack hope, that we still want to innovate, and I need to show the young people today that innovation change has made the world a better place. We can also make it a safer place for our kids if we have that same attitude. And so I listen to John and the science and I get it, but that is never going to be, nor is it for John, the end of the story. Someone's given us a challenge, just go for it. What are the areas that you see the most exciting progress? Offshore wind is now taking hold in the United States. Is it battery storage and density? What gets you really excited well, that's, that we don't quite know yet about yet that could be a big breakthrough? Well, first of all, there are a lot of things we do know about. We've seen sharply declining costs of photovoltaics, sharply declining costs of wind. Uh, they will decline further with big offshore uh, wind farms. I will tell you one of the most encouraging things I recently heard. We had a visit from the Indian Minister of Power, the Minister of Power of uh, the second largest population in the world, the largest democracy in the world, India, accompanied by the head of the biggest and most important energy and climate think tank in India. And they agreed that by 2026, India will be building no more coal-fired power plants because by their own projections, wind and solar with storage will be cheaper than coal. 2026 in India, mind you. Uh, same thing is happening in China. I mean, when you say, where do you go for encouragement? I go to China, I go to India, I go to Europe, I go to the Arctic countries because we have a big Arctic initiative where the climate change in the Arctic is twice as fast as it is in the rest of the world, all kinds of consequences. And what I find is people all over the world have come to the conclusion that climate change is real, it's already harming us, it's gonna do more unless and until we get our arms around it. And they are finding ways to get their arms around it. That is the biggest breakthrough. The breakthrough in human understanding, optimism, initiative, innovation to deal with the challenge. I think we're gonna see big further breakthroughs in electric vehicles. We're gonna have electric cars that go 300 miles on a charge and that charge, in, ten, and that charge in 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah, it's now up to about 250. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be 300 miles, and they're going to charge in 10 minutes, and you're going to be able to drive across the United States, up and down the country, uh, to Alaska if you want, uh, in your electric vehicle. Uh, and then we just have to be sure that the electricity is generated in ways that aren't wrecking the environment. I mean, Gina's right. The electric car doesn't emit any pollution, but the power plants, many of them still do. Yeah. In fact, one of my uh, late colleagues, a pioneer in energy efficiency, Lee Shipper, once said, we don't have zero emission vehicles, we have elsewhere emission vehicles. <laughs> and we gotta fix that too. That's but, changing too. But yeah. it's gonna happen. It's yep. going to happen. We are going to have a much cleaner electricity system, a much cleaner transportation system. We're gonna have more efficient buildings. The Woods Hole Research Center, which I had the privilege of directing for a few years before I went into the Obama administration, has a building that is beautiful, that is functional, and that is basically a zero net energy building. It's got photovoltaics on the roof, it's got a wind turbine on the site, and it generates more electricity than it uses. Uh, that's gonna be the standard for buildings in the future. Uh, tremendous I agree with John, it's so exciting when you go outside the United States and you see what's happening in the, in the real world and people's interest in, in looking at the future and driving towards it, you know, really moving it. 
But it's also the saddest thing in the world <laughs> for me <laughs> to have to leave the country <laughs> to, to, get. See, to get that feeling uh, of hopefulness. That's got to change. Yeah, but you can also go to California, <laughs> where 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 there are some extraordinary Massachusetts things Massachusetts is pretty cool. And too. Massachusetts is pretty good too, <laughs> and and so is Wisconsin, and so is New York. Uh, I things mean, are changing. The, the, the things are changing. There are places in this country that are doing extraordinary things on climate change. Let's go to our audience question. Invite you to join us here at Climate One. So yes. Um, I want to address uh, Gina McCarthy. Uh, I find you extraordinarily inspiring and um, also very accessible, and I want to know, would you come talk to my Board of Health, who don't seem to recognize that climate in Gloucester? But I'm not the only one. I mean, go to all of the Boards of Health. Many I of just them. wondered, because I was a Board of Health agent at the oh. early part of my career. Well, I they don't. love that job. Yeah, <laughs> and, it's a, and it's a very powerful job, but that mine, ours and several others I know do not seem to recognize climate as a health risk. Yeah. So uh, I it's wonder. It's not unusual. We've not talked about it that way. Yeah. Can, will you talk to them? <laughs> <laughs> I'll do the best I can to talk to anybody who wants to talk so to me. So health <laughs> lags. People think about climate yeah. as polar bears, but yeah, it is not do. yet. If it's you ask the person yeah. on the street, human health, Zika, mm -hmm. whatever it is, doesn't come to mind fast enough. And you're going to work on that, I think. I'm, I am going to desperately try to do that. This is what we're doing at Sea Change, the center that I have, because we are, you know, talking to this administration uh, mostly about transportation and looking at the new transportation and climate initiative um, that is is being worked out. Um, and it's you know ten states uh, or nine or ten states, and it's really a terrific opportunity to think about subnational work that can be really influential. But what we're doing is really, number one, trying to translate the science and language that people can understand and grab, but really personalize it. And part of the work we're doing with partners across the country is to really put a face on climate change. It's just not had it. You know, the, the face has been really a polar bear. And if that polar bear shows up at another climate meeting, you got to get your that. gun. <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to chase it out if I can possibly do that. Because really, you know, the, the, one of the exciting things in my life is that I have a grandson uh, now, and, and he's like seven months old, and, and he's the cutest thing ever. And if you want a face of climate change, you can borrow him because he's mine. <laughs> um, and I have a granddaughter coming in the end of June, and I'm just, it's so important for us to make our children the face of what we do and what we work for. You know, there isn't a parent anywhere that I know who, if they saw a bus flying down the middle of the road and their kids standing in the way of that bus, they wouldn't do everything humanly possible to save them. That's the kind of attitude we need to make. And, in, and in, even in, in New England, we see drastic changes in terms of what our climate looks like. You know, we lost cranberry bogs how long ago? They're now in, in Montreal, for crying out loud, you know? Well, maybe not downtown Montreal, but they're there. You know, and, and, and we have Lyme disease at levels that nobody anticipated, and it's not a joke. It can debilitate young people for the rest of their lives. And we have to get medical professionals involved, which is one of the reasons why we exist, is to connect dots like this, get the healthcare community engaged, figure out how we prepare for climate change that's already we know is happening and going to continue, but also get trusted advisors to talk to people about climate 
it. So it's not John Holdren or me, but it's your doctor or it's your nurse or it's medical professional organizations starting to step up and say, you know, this matters. This is no less a, a, a challenge for you than cancer or Alzheimer's disease because frankly, they're all related to one another and it's a future that we can get rid of those things if we move forward. So health matters. It's going to matter and, and, and is, that's a driver for change. There is progress being made on this. I mean, one of the things that I would note is late in the Obama administration, we convened in the White House the deans of most of the country's schools of medicine, schools of public health, and schools of nursing to talk about including in the curricula of these schools courses on climate change and health so that the trusted physicians and nurses and public health specialists that they turned out would be able to talk to their patients. Let's be go to our next question before they have to get out the door. Yeah, next question please here at Climate One at Harvard University today. Thank you for all that you've said today. I have a question about the town at the town level. We've talked about individuals, yeah. we've talked about the federal government, yeah. we've talked about the state, but a lot of us are working within our communities as a community at the town level. Right. And I think they're, I guess my question is, what's, what are the most powerful steps that a town can take? Well, you know, when, when I started in this job, I actually, that's where we started, was at the community level. I mean, there were great things. And what we started to do is to just develop a climate action plan you know, for your own community. It started with, and we talked about this last time we were together, is municipal buildings are extraordinarily inefficient. You get folks who don't have a job trained to do the work to update every municipal building. Go to your schools. Schools are the unhealthiest buildings, usually the ones least able to keep their kids awake and learn. Figure out what's going on there and make some changes. Bring solar energy to your school so kids can see it working. That's what gives them hope, is to have a concrete example. Figure out how you get bike lanes. Figure out how you recycle and actually have the recycled material go to some place to be recycled. And there if you're a coastal community, figure out what sea level rise is going to do in your community right. and how you can adapt to it and how the city uh, planners need to take into account what sea level is going to do. I mean, at one point, everything happened at the community level. Since when did we want to divest our ability to shape our own communities? That's why I think it is an ability for you to go out, hang out together, form groups, be annoying to people who don't recycle. They annoy the heck out of me, you know? And if, and if a person says, I'm an environmentalist, I recycle, tell them, well, good for you. What else do you do? Do you know what I mean? Think about it. Get electric charging stations throughout your community. Get bike groups together to make sure that there's safety in numbers. Walk, make your kids walk to school and accompany them. These are things we used to do. That get back in the natural world. Understand that you're part of it and you, you have to control it and be part of it and, and recognize when your control isn't there. You have to give the world its due. We are just overtaxing the world that we live in. We have to stop it. And the best way to do it is one little community at a time. Gina McCarthy, former head of the US EPA under President Obama, speaking at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where she directs the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment. We also heard from John Holdren, former science advisor to President Obama, 
and now a professor of environmental policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. To hear all of our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Join us next time for another conversation about energy, the economy, and the environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strelovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.